you and I are going to die because you see, the Bible teaches that you and I have a body. But you, the real you, your intelligence, your memory, your personality is going to live forever and ever. You will never die. And you're going to spend a million years, a billion years, in one of two places. Yeah, good morning, everybody. As always, so good to be with you. So today we are in week two, our series on heaven and hell. And this morning, we're gonna hear from Jesus himself as he uses the word in Greek, it's Gehenna, Gehenna. When you read that word in your Bible, it's translated as hell. Now, I mentioned it last week, but I have to say it again at the beginning today because people have, uh, have often, they've often said to me, Do, is this something that we have to talk about? You know, do we have to have this conversation? And my response is the same every time. The answer is yes, we do. And the reason why is because Jesus talked about it himself. In fact, it might surprise you to know that Jesus talked about hell more than he talked about heaven. And when he did, he did so vividly. Vividly. It should also be said at the outset that uh, the Bible's really clear in telling us the heart of God towards all of humanity. It's God's desire that none should perish. In fact, we read this in 2 Peter chapter 3. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach Repentance. So this is the heart of God. It's not God's desire that any should perish. And the fact is, humans have this thing called free will. So we can either choose to accept God's gracious and merciful plan of redemption, rescue, salvation, whatever words you want to use, or people can reject it. And so because the consequences of rejecting what God has offered, because it's so awful, I believe this is the reason why why Jesus speaks about it, because he wants to forewarn people. He also wants to motivate his own people. And so what I wanna do is I wanna take a look at the, the words that the descriptions that Jesus actually uses. And then we're gonna unpack the meaning of it, specifically, again, regarding his description using the word Gehenna. But let me just take a few passages. I'm gonna read 10 of them to you that that come from Jesus himself. Now, before I read that, let me say this. It's, It's become popular to say that Jesus saves you from a purposeless life or to say that Jesus saves you from a dysfunctional life, a life of destruction. And all of that is true, but all of that falls very short because ultimately what you are saved from, according to Jesus, is an eternity apart from God in an unimaginably awful place, a place of torment. So this is what Jesus has to say about it. Whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the hell of fire. 
Now remember, the word hell, when you read the English word hell, that's the Greek word Gehenna. Again, we'll talk about more, more about that in a second. But notice the description. He attaches fire to it. It is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than having two eyes, to be cast into the hell of fire. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel about on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell. Into, and notice this description, the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell. If your eye causes you to stumble, cast it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell. And then notice this description. We'll come back to this. Just, just remember it for now. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, have, who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So the term rendered hell, again, in Greek is Gehenna. And it's really important for us to understand what this means. It is a very vivid word and it's giving a very vivid picture. So, most commentators today will tell you that Gehenna, and maybe you're familiar with this, that Gehenna refers to a dump that was located just outside the city of Jerusalem and its walls to the south side. Gehenna literally means Gehenom, means Valley of Hinnom, and that's the name of the valley that surrounded this southern wall outside of Jerusalem. And it's believed that years ago, there was a dump located in this valley. And people would bring their trash and they would light it on fire. And so it's sort of this, this awful place where smoke was always rising and things were always being burned continuously. And it's like the fire never went out because people were continuously bringing their trash there. And so when Jesus wants to paint a picture of life apart from God, eternal life apart from God, he says, let me point you to that trash dump on the outskirts of the city. So. If you're familiar with this topic, you, you, you might have heard this explanation before. I'm not so sure that's the case. I actually think what Jesus is describing is far worse, and here's why. We don't have one shred of archeological evidence that there was ever a dump located in this valley. And we should find some. I mean, we have archaeological evidence from dumps that have been around for, you know, that were in existence thousands of years ago. If people are bringing their trash, it's easy to spot an archaeological dump site. Okay, that's pretty easy. But there isn't one shred of evidence, and these places have been explored quite a bit. There's a one piece of evidence that supports there, there was some kind of ancient dump located in this valley. So then you have to ask the question, well, how did this idea come about? Well, in 1200 AD, there was a rabbi, and I'm pretty sure I'm mispronouncing his name. It's spelled something like kimchi. This rabbi wrote about a dump that existed in this valley. 
And that's the only piece of evidence we have, the only shred of literature, that's the only thing we have to identify a dump at this location. Outside of that, there's nothing else, there's nothing else. So I'm led to believe that maybe that's not as accurate as some would like for it to believe. Instead, I think Jesus is describing a place that's actually more terrifying. Now what Jesus did time and time again, he was the master at pulling from the Old Testament and bringing these concepts to his, his audience in the first century AD, which were primarily Jewish. And then he would, he would use those examples, illustrations, to emphasize something that was happening in their own time now that Jesus was on the scene. So for example, when before the cross, he's sharing the Passover meal with his disciples, he takes all of the very common elements. I mean, these, these things have been common and practiced during Passover for, for a long time. And Jesus takes those elements and he reinterprets them. He says, this bread is now my body. It used to be known as the bread of affliction, but now I'm the one that's gonna be afflicted. So this bread represents my body. He says, this cup represents a new covenant. So Jesus was always reaching into the Old Testament and pulling things out and helping his first... Now remember, as he's speaking to people, primarily in, in the audience, are, they're Jews, people from the nation of Israel. And so when he spoke, he had something very specific that he, that he, was, he was wanting to communicate. It's, it's doubtful, it's speculative, highly speculative to me that when he uses the word Gehenna, those first century Jews are thinking, oh, you're talking about the, the dump. I don't think so. There's more. To the mind of a first century Jew, the Valley of Hinnom actually represented one of the most wicked times in the nation of Israel's history from the past. Because in this valley, at a time when the nation of Israel had so moved away from God, they they had actually adopted pagan practices. And one of those pagan practices involved child sacrifice. In fact, we get some details of this and and the king of, of, of Israel actually participated in it at this time, 2 Kings chapter 16. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign. Now that's far too young to have this kind of power. He's 20 years old and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. So the city of Jerusalem is his his seat of authority. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father had done, but he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. And it wasn't a good walk, it was a walk away from God. And then you get this. He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. So these events actually took place in this valley of Hinnom, where the people of God had drifted so far that they were now worshiping these pagan gods through child sacrifice. Now, history and archaeology, they've revealed one of the primary pagan gods to whom child sacrifice was offered was this god named Molech. And perhaps you've seen pictures of this one, kind of freaky looking, has the head of a bull, horns, and the arms are usually outstretched like this. And the mouth is gaping, it's a really big mouth. 
and the stomach is open, very often empty. And so it's believed that the fires would be started within the belly of this man-made God, the structure. The arms are outstretched like this to receive children who would then roll down the arms into this giant mouth, fall down into the belly of the flames and be consumed. And that was the way in which these gods were appealed. There are also depictions of Moloch and his hands are closer to the belly where the fire is. And so as these bronze arms are heated up, they begin to glow. And then people would place their sons and daughters, their children on these hands. And of course they would be consumed. The people of God, the king, sacrificing his own son to these pagan gods in the valley of Hinnom, Gehenna. So when Jesus uses the word Gehenna, I'm not so sure he's talking about something as simple as a smoldering dump. I think in the minds of his first century Jewish listener, they're thinking, oh, Gehenna. That was that awful place where the nation sacrificed their own children to pagan gods. What's more is the prophet Jeremiah comes on the scene and he says, because you have done this, we're going to rename this valley. And he literally calls it, it's gonna be the valley of slaughter because God is gonna bring his judgment on your wickedness. You offer up your children in sacrifice, God is gonna judge you for it. So, I think it's actually quite worse than what many people uh, expect. Now, before we go on, let me just make a little side comment here. So often, us modern day people, we look at ancient people and think they're so barbaric, they're so unsophisticated, they're so uncivilized. Like who would think to offer a child and sacrifice to a God in this way? Maybe we're not so far removed. Anybody read the Wall Street Journal article from four days ago? You know which one I'm talking about? If you've read it, just raise your hand. One person in the first, first, first the eight o'clock service, only one person knows what I'm talking about. Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. Wall Street Journal article from four days ago. Let me give you the title. Instagram connects vast pedophile network. This is Wall Street Journal. Instagram connects vast pedophile network. Are we surprised? No. Here's what's shocking. None of you have even heard that. Don't you think that's kind of a big deal? Don't you think it's kind of a big deal? Don't you think something should be investigated? Shouldn't something be done? We, you haven't even heard about it. You don't even know. Shouldn't there be some massive outrage going on from some, somewhere, somebody, some place of authority? You haven't even heard about it. Powers of darkness love to take what is sacred and innocent and pure and corrupted. Life, marriage, children. I've said it before, what makes children so special, so precious? It's their innocence. You take away a child's innocence, your society is done. Maybe we don't care that much anymore. Maybe we don't care that much anymore. Maybe we're not that far removed from some of these barbaric ancient people. Jeremiah says, because you've done this, 
The Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, will now be known as the Valley of Slaughter. So there is this eschatological final judgment that is in the minds of the listener as Jesus uses this word Gehenna. And the language itself, I think, bears this out, exactly what Jesus is doing. Reaching back into the Old Testament and using that imagery to remind them. Let me read it again, Mark chapter nine. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God, says Jesus, with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where, and this is interesting, at this point, he actually quotes the Old Testament. He quotes Isaiah chapter 66. What I said earlier, time and time again, he, let, me, let me help you understand what I'm talking about. Let me reach into the Old Testament. I'll pull something out so you understand the picture I'm trying to paint for you. He quotes the prophet Isaiah. And he says, this is a place where the worms that eat them do not die. What is that talking about? What it talks about is this. When a body is, is dead, what begins to take over? Decomposition, which involves what? Worms. Maggots. So when, it's, when this language saying the worm doesn't die, what that's talking about is it's body after body after body. It's this never-ending decay that takes place. It's, it doesn't stop. And he says, the fire is not quenched. I think Jesus is drawing directly from Isaiah's eschatological vision of a final judgment. All right, so let's pause here and let's, let's take up this conversation because it's become quite popular today to believe that <clears throat> either hell is not a real place or that it is not a place of eternal torment. And we've talked about this a little bit last week and because it does, it does offend human sensibilities to some degree, right? It's hard to justify a God of love and a place of eternal torment. How do you reconcile those things? It's hard to justify a place of eternal torment for temporal sins. But again, we discussed this last week, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. What you see from, La- from the rich man who is in Sheol, which is a place of torment, he treats Lazarus uh, as his servant less than. It's his attitude. Go tell Lazarus to do this for me. Go tell Lazarus to warn my family. He's still treating Lazarus as if he's a person who's inferior to him. It's pride, it's ego. And the one in torment carries that attitude, disposition, and the, and, the, and the following actions with him. So could it be that even in this place of eternal torment, people are still rebelling against God? Therefore, there's ongoing punishment that corresponds to the ongoing rebellion. There is uh, a number of arguments, there are a number of arguments put forth <clears throat> that attempt to erase the idea of this, this just the concept of, of an eternal torment. And you may be familiar with the idea or the concept of annihilationism, which is the belief that upon death, you're just annihilated. You just cease to exist. And that eternity is only for those who are in heaven. And so hell or Gehenna is this awful place, but you're not there for very long because while you're there, you're just sort of evaporated. Um, 
And the arguments for this, uh, the verses they use, I'll give you one of them and then I'll explain to you uh, perhaps what I think is a better understanding. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So they say that word destroy refers to the doing away with an individual, like they, they cease to exist. They're no, they're no longer around. Yeah, I mean, if you think this through, I don't know if that makes sense. To destroy something and to annihilate something are actually two different things. Um, for example, if I get in a, well, this happened to me. Um, my son, when he was about 18 years old, right, I got that phone call. He said, Dad, I've been in a car accident. You know, well, your first question is, all right, son, well, are you okay? Yeah, were you with anybody? Yeah, I was with my friend, Josh. All right, is Josh, yeah, we're both okay, okay, great. Second question, how's the car? Well, Dad, it's destroyed. It's destroyed. Does that mean that it's no longer a car? No. You can visit that destroyed car at the salvage yard now. It means it's inoperable. It doesn't work. It doesn't function anymore, but it's not annihilated. It, it still exists. As, and if you saw it, you'd be like, oh, look at that car. It's destroyed. It's not annihilated. So I don't think you can read into this concept of destruction, annihilation. And um, ad- additionally, there is this idea put forth that the word eternal doesn't necessarily mean never ending, but that it refers to age of ages and ages have beginnings and endings. Uh, There's some challenges with this though, I think too. Just let me read you some verses. uh, And and I I think um, my biggest obstacle to, to annihilationism probably comes from Jesus himself. Matthew chapter 25, he says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So the word eternal is used there. Again, some believe that eternal should be better translated as age, age upon age, a specific time. But notice that this place was actually prepared for the devil and his angels. And so it happens to be a place also, though, where the unrighteous will go. He goes on, though, in verse 45. Then he, Jesus, will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So here's what's interesting. Let's go ahead and keep that verse up there. Notice that the word eternal is used twice in very close proximity to each other. So if the word eternal before punishment refers to a limited amount of time, how can you say that the word eternal before the word life also refers to a limited point of time? That does, that's not good hermeneutics. You know, that's not the, the science of understanding literature. That's not how we do it. You have two of the exact same words. They have to have the same meaning because if eternal punishment does not go on forever, then neither does eternal life. It doesn't make sense then why has this belief become popular? Well, it's like what I said earlier. This is a tough one. It's really challenging. It's challenging to think that people would suffer for all eternity in an unimaginably awful place. That's hard. That's hard. But think about this. If everybody gets into heaven, including those who don't repent, including those who are rebellious, those who are wicked, those who are defiant, those who rebel against God, if those people get into heaven, what does heaven become? It becomes hell. Heaven no longer becomes heaven if you just let everybody in. So 
what do we do with this? Well, I, I think this serves as a very strong motivator. Number one, we have something to communicate that's really important. In fact, it's the most important thing you could discuss with somebody, and that is where they spend an eternity. And the Bible's really clear on it. People spend an eternity in one of two places, either in the presence of God, which is a literal heaven, or apart from God, which is a literal hell. When we bring this awareness, and I said this in one of the services, at least one of the services last week, with three services, you guys gotta forgive me. I can't remember what I say when anymore, so be gracious with me, okay? One of the services last week, I said, I love what R.C. Sproul says. He says, we have to preach hell because Jesus preached it, and he did so a lot. If I preached Gehenna as often as Jesus did, church would be cut in half probably in six months. You probably wouldn't wanna hear it so often. So we preach it because it's in the book, because Jesus preached it. But we always do so with a tear in our eyes. It's a tear of sorrow and also a tear of gratitude. You understand what I'm saying? It's a tear of deep sorrow, but it's also a tear of profound gratitude. And again, I mentioned when at least one of the services last week. You cannot fully appreciate your salvation unless you fully understand exactly what you've been saved from. It's like if I came to you and I said, hey, I wanna pay off all your debt. You're like, all, your de all my debt? Oh, I wanna pay off all your debt. This is the difference between, hey, I wanna pay off your debt. Oh, which one, my credit card or my mortgage payment? All of it. I wanna pay off all of it. But in order to do that, I'm gonna work the rest of my life. And at the end of my life, I won't have had it enough, so I'm gonna have to go into bankruptcy to pay your debt. Yeah, I'll do that for you, gladly. I'll do that for you. See, this is where hell has to be put in its proper context because, and that's why I began with the heart of God, it's his desire that no one should perish. But because we're not robots, you can't have a, rela a real relationship without free will. If I said to you, hey, here's my robot wife, and she's like, I love Jason, I love Jason, and I'm like, isn't she beautiful? And she's so sweet, watch what she says next, and I push a button, you're gonna be like, that's no relationship, why? She has to have the ability to choose to love me. That's what makes it a relationship. If I take away free will, what, what do we have? We don't, there, you can't have love without free will. You also can't have rejection without free will. So this is the way life works. So it's God's desire that none should perish. Sure, God's gonna save you from a destructive lifestyle here on earth. Sure, he's gonna give you purpose. That's ultimately not what God saved you from. He saves you from hell. This is why Jesus talked about it so often. Uh, you may have uh, seen a video, it became quite popular back in the day. It's a video of Penn from the comedy duo Penn and Teller. You know which one I'm talking about? Penn describes himself as an, as an atheist, which I always think is interesting because I don't know, there, can there really be an intellectual atheist? Because to be, and the atheist says there is no God. To say there is no God definitively, what that means is you would have to know everything about everything 
and then say, I have concluded based on my infinite wisdom that there is no God. You would have to be godlike to say there is no God. At best, you can be an agnostic. You're not certain. He calls himself an atheist. After one of his shows, this young man approaches him and says, hey, I really liked your show and I have a little something for you and, and it was a Bible. And in the Bible, kid had written, you know, great show. This is for you. It's real simple, real kind, not intrusive. And so, Penn takes it. And what he said afterwards was really remarkable. And this is the video I put together, but I, I, um, I have the actual words of what he said. He's talking about people that don't proselytize, people who don't proselytize. He says this, quote, I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, and atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize or say, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? Yeah, he kind of gets it. How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and then not tell them that? If I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, and that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. So this is Penn describing himself as an atheist, and I think he has, perhaps better than many Christians, a proper understanding of the importance of the message. He's like, I don't respect anybody that won't tell me the truth, what they think is the truth. If they think I'm bound for some awful place, yeah, they should tell me. Otherwise, what? They don't care about me. And if they care about me, they're gonna talk to me about it. So that's why I say this, this also serves as a purifying truth for us to reach those around us with the message. And also it serves as a purifying truth towards our own holiness on this side of eternity. Listen to what the, uh, the author of Hebrews says, chapter 10. He says, for if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And that's right. What, what else are you gonna appeal to to make right all that you've done wrong? That's why Jesus comes. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Jesus comes, dies in our place. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ. Jesus dies on the cross for your sins, you get eternal life. What else are you gonna appeal to to absolve all the wrongs that you've done? If not Jesus, there's nothing else left for you but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? So it's as if he, the author is saying, the law of Moses is confirmed by two or three witnesses that's all you need. But what about the witness of the Holy Spirit in your life, okay? That's gonna transcend any human witness. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. That's why, Christian, you don't need to take revenge or leave it for God. The Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hell reminds us of what we have been saved from Hell makes sense in light of the righteous anger of a holy God. Hell makes sense in light of what heaven is and what it's meant to be. 
Hell reminds us that our offenses are real and they do offend a holy God. And hell reminds us not to play God for the fool. Those are the purifying truths. So, hey, what does it mean for you? I'm gonna have you bow your heads and close your eyes just to free you from any distractions. If anything, you probably have somebody in your life, you definitely have someone in your life, someone you care about. And for whatever reason, maybe it's kind of like what Penn said, because of the awkwardness, because of the difficulty in sharing the message, we don't. The word gospel, as many of you know, literally means good news but there can only be good news in light of the bad news. And the bad news is all around us. And so I think now more than ever, we ought to be bold because there is an ever increasing amount of evidence that something is wrong with the world. And to some degree, what makes it wrong is you and me. And so we ought not to be shy about entering into these conversations about what's really inside of each of our hearts and what God came to do to fix that. So Father, our desire is that these would serve as purifying truths. And even as we leave this place, God, you would impress upon our hearts just exactly, exactly what your spirit is calling us to do. And that we would take action, we would be bold enough and Father, we're just grateful. We're grateful on this side of eternity, but how much more so in the life to come when we experience the fullness of what we have been saved from. God, we join your heart in expressing the desire that none would perish. So we pray for those hardened and stubborn hearted hearts that are just so resistant, God. We pray that, that they would just melt. And the thing that causes the, the hard heart to melt is your love and your mercy and your grace. Why would we fight against that? God, I ask for a special measure of blessing as we apply these truths to our lives, Lord, because always it's for our good, but ultimately it's for your glory. We ask it in the one who makes it all possible and his name is Jesus Christ and God's people said,